Hey, Dunker Punks, will you vote on November 8th? I wonder if our theme song will help you decide whether you're voting and how you might vote. Here it is. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, don't want to be vengeful, no. I don't want to be a soldier, don't want to be militaristic, don't want to help that cycle, I just want to be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. I just want to be me. Hello and welcome to the Dunker Punks podcast. I'm Nancy Fitzgerald, your host today. In this episode, we hear from DunkerPunks.com founder Emmett Eldred. You'll learn more about him as you listen. And he engages all sides of the issue, not the issues of the 2016 election, but the issue of voting. Should Christians vote? And if so, what are our guiding principles? I think you will learn something, something new. I did. If you're anything like me, you probably are experiencing a lot of election overload by now. You can't wait for November 8th to come and go so that this ugly election season can finally come to an end. But if you're anything like me, you probably also feel a deep sense of ambivalence. On the one hand, elections are frustrating and ugly. On the other hand, elections deeply impact the things you care about, your friends, your family, your community. Our feelings towards elections only become more complicated when we start to think about our faith. 
On the one hand, we hear politicians on both sides of the aisle often using faith as a justification for the policies that they support. You could be wondering, as a person of faith, whose argument is right? Are both arguments right? Or neither? You also can't help but feel conflicted. Should faith be a part of our public discourse? Should politicians use faith-based arguments to justify their policies? What about the separation of church and state? And what does it mean when the church gets wrapped up in pursuing power through politics? My name is Emmett Eldred. I'm the founder of DunkerPunks.com, and if you have the misfortune of being my friend on Facebook, you know that I get involved in politics. I've worked on political campaigns, I've worked in legislative offices, right now I work for a political organization that's involved in the presidential election, and I'm the founder and president of a political organization at my college campus. I care a lot about politics. But through my work with the Dunker Punks, I've come across a lot of people that feel very differently and present really valid arguments for where they come down. Through my work in political organizing, I've come across a lot of people that are deeply involved in politics and approach it through a faith-based perspective. One such person is Reverend Janet Edwards. She's a Presbyterian minister in Pittsburgh where I go to school. She's also very involved in local and even national politics first met Janet when we worked together on a political campaign. It was a campaign for governor of Pennsylvania in 2014. I was happy to sit down with Janet and ask her how her faith impacts her decision to be involved in politics. Throughout this episode, you will hear Janet's voice in rebuttal to arguments that say that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics for a variety of reasons. For now, I want to let Janet introduce herself. Can you say your name, please? Janet Edwards. And what do you do? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I am a Presbyterian minister. But my title is parish associate at the Community House Presbyterian Church, which is on the north side of Pittsburgh. But what I primarily am is a church agitator, I would say. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've, worked primarily in the church but also in the community to um, what I consider to be push the church to live out what I think to be Christian values particularly in the area of LGBTQ inclusion. Janet is well known within the Presbyterian Church as an activist and as an agitator. While she's familiar with the politics of the church, she's also got a lot of experience with electoral politics as well. The presidential election of Al Gore and George Bush. 2004, I worked for Move On. In 2008, I worked for Obama, and it was an absolutely fantastic experience. And really, from that time onward, I worked in almost every campaign cycle. So I've worked city council campaigns, mayor campaigns, governor's campaigns, senatorial campaigns. I worked as well in 12 for 
Obama and now am working for Hillary. Today, I want to put these two positions in dialogue. On, on the one hand, is it appropriate for Christians to get involved in politics? On the other hand, is it appropriate for Christians not to? My goal isn't to make you think one side is right and the other side is wrong, but rather I hope to encourage you to think deeply about how you can live out your faith. Whether or not you choose to get involved in politics, I hope we can all agree that our faith is one that is deeply entwined with the world around it. We care about situations of injustice. We care about situations of oppression. For some of us, politics is a way of changing those realities. For others, getting involved in politics ingratiates us in the very systems of power that created those situations in the first place. One thing we can all agree on is that elections come and they go, politicians win and lose, they keep promises and they break them. But the work of Christians to create God's kingdom here as it is in heaven, to create systems of equity and justice, will never end. Whether you decide to get involved in politics or not, whether you even choose to vote or not, let's all agree that on November 9th, we've got to pick up the mantle of justice. We've got to shout out the name of Jesus. We have to stand up to those in power and remind them that we are on the side of the powerless and that our ultimate authorities are not our political leaders, but only Jesus Christ. Tony Campolo from the Red Letter Christians often says that mixing faith and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. You might not do much to the manure, but you're really going to mess up the ice cream. A lot of Christians oppose the church getting involved in politics, not because they think it undermines the separation of church and state from a secular perspective, but that they know that the process of politics can undermine the credibility and the integrity of the church itself. The church is the ice cream, and when you mix it with the manure of politics, it becomes inedible, unrecognizable, and completely abhorrent. It's worth noting, though, that Tony Campolo is no stranger to mixing politics and faith himself. He once ran for a seat in the United States Congress. He once served on the platform committee during the Democratic National Convention. And he's well known for taking up political issues, advising political leaders, and engaging in political advocacy. Still, I think his point is a good one. I think we can all point to examples of modern day faith leaders who, by getting involved in politics, end up damaging their own reputations and credibility. In the end, we don't much trust their political opinions or their spiritual advice. The same goes for politicians themselves when they invoke their faith to justify their platform positions. Who can forget Donald Trump standing on a stage in Iowa and waving around his Bible, literally 
waving around his Bible. Often it is not the political campaigns that are hurt by these displays. More often, it's the case that their faith, their church, America's trust in religious institutions is what goes down the drain. Americans have a record low opinion of the church. They see it as manipulative, they see it as judgmental, they see it as vying for power in our secular institutions. And a lot of that has to do with the way politicians have used faith-based arguments, have leveraged their faith in order to gain political power. We don't trust the church anymore. And a lot of people end up not trusting Jesus anymore. Oftentimes, it is any fidelity to the instructions and authority of Scripture that takes the deepest hit. We can't help but think of the biblical Pharisees when we see modern-day religious leaders like Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. advocate that we turn away refugees and belittle immigrants, when Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New, clearly admonishes God's people to welcome strangers and care for refugees. That's a lot of manure that's been mixed into our ice cream. That's a big question, especially in our present election. It's really, really a big deal for me. That's Reverend Janet Edwards again. We sat outside during our conversation in her backyard, in part so we could listen to the sounds of the city. So during this segment, you're going to hear one particular sound of the city, a buzzing leaf blower. Still, Janet spoke eloquently and passionately about the tension that I've brought up here. Can the church lose its integrity by playing politics? Uh, um, I feel that we have, that, that the religious rights choices on how to play politics has so muddied the traditional understanding of the separate of what the concept, the basic concept in our politics of separation between church and state is. It was not meant to be a separation between faith and state. It was church and state, our institutions. It was meant to be a separation between those institutions so that the institution of the church could not use the powers of the state to impose their faithfulness on anybody, which was the problem that many who came to the United States were fleeing in fear of their lives to come here, to find, to find a place where they could exercise their faith and not fear that the, that the powers of the state would be brought to bear against them in a life-threatening way. That was its purpose. The, um, for the, and I myself would, would, could frame it that exactly a violation of that understanding is what the religious right is about. They want to bring the powers of the state to bear, to tell women what to do. They want to bring the powers of the state to bear on LGBTQ people and who they can live their lives with. 
make their life commitments to. For some, this might be all the evidence they need to say that no politician ought to bring their faith to the table when they're making secular, political decisions. But Janet sees things differently. At its best, faith is a powerful tool for promoting justice. President Obama brings his faith to every day when he walks into that Oval Office. When I saw Hillary Clinton, what I, when I had a chance to speak directly to her, I said, I said, you and Elizabeth Warren are both good Methodist girls. Did you, did you know that Elizabeth Warren was the Methodist Sunday school teacher for her children when she was young? Hillary knew that, actually, she said. I said, you stick by those values and you can't go wrong, and I really believe that. That's, that is not a violation of the separation between church and state. Everyone who's ever been in the White House has brought whatever faithfulness they have to, their, to the choices that they've made to the things they've committed themselves to. That's, that is perfectly fine. The question of whether it's appropriate to engage in politics is even more complicated as members of the Church of the Brethren, a historic peace church. How can we even vote much less volunteer or work in federal elections, knowing that any candidates that we vote for will authorize wars if they work in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, or will wage wars if they are our candidate for president. Take a look at our choice this November 8th. Donald Trump promises that he will be the most militaristic president that we've ever had. He advocates that the military reinstitute torture that the military should bomb entire villages, including civilians, if it means killing terrorists. He won't take nuclear weapons off the table, and he thinks that we should torture and kill not just terrorists, but even their families. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton has earned a reputation for what is known as a war hawk, someone who eagerly, or at the very least, very willingly, engages and pushes for military conflict. She voted to authorize the war in Iraq when she was in the Senate. As Secretary of State, she pushed for intervention in Libya, and as a presidential candidate, she has advocated a much stronger stance towards military intervention in Syria and towards Russian aggression. Whichever candidate we vote for, either of the major party candidates that becomes president will be a president who drops bombs on people that authorizes drone strikes against people, and who, if the situation arises, will willingly deploy soldiers into the Middle East or elsewhere around the world. If we take seriously Jesus' commandment to love not just our neighbors, but also to love our enemies, how can we vote for someone who will wage war? This isn't to suggest equivalence between the two candidates. It's not to say that the United States will be equally violent under either's leadership. It's not to say that their domestic policies towards our own citizens would be the same and equally violent under either candidate. But it is to say that by voting in federal elections, we are willing accomplices 
It's what Martin Luther King Jr. described as the greatest purveyor of violence the world has ever known. Then again, Martin Luther King Jr. is one of this country's political heroes, and though he never ran for elected office himself, a lot of his major civil rights victories, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, dealt with the rights of African Americans to participate in all elections, including federal elections. Dr. King was also an outspoken critic of war, but he never doubted the power or the importance of being able to participate in the political process. Janet Edwards is also a pacifist, yet she believes that being able to take part in the political process is one of the most important tools that Christians have at their disposal to creating a just, sustainable, and yes, peaceful world, even if they're helping elect presidents that might, in the short term, wage war. If, in the long term, their policies and their legacy help put an end to war, injustice, and institutional violence. I don't, I really don't require purity on the part of politicians at the local level or the, or the national level. And I do feel it is my duty as a citizen to, to involve myself in the ways that are open to me to be involved in, in, in determining who are our political leaders and, and to press them on what I want them to do. A lot of Christians who believe in nonviolence choose not to vote, at least not in federal elections. Instead, they leave the federal portion of their ballot blank, or they vote for a third-party candidate whose positions advocate clear denunciation of war and state violence. This way, Christians can still vote at the local and state level for candidates that do impact their communities in important ways, but they won't be signing their seal of approval with a candidate who wages war. But some Christians who otherwise find this approach attractive feel that being able to abstain from federal elections is a function of their privilege in society. Take me. I'm white, I'm male, straight, cisgender, I'm Christian, and I'm a United States citizen. All of those characteristics carry with them deep privilege. Whether or not I vote in this election, I'm probably going to be okay. There's no candidate saying that I shouldn't be able to enter this country because of my religion. There's no candidate who is okay with police killing me because of the color of my skin. There's no candidate who thinks I shouldn't have the right to get married. There's no candidate who would accept if I made 75% less money because of my gender. There's no candidate who wants me and my family to be deported. And there's no candidate who might be deciding to bomb my community and torture my family. With this in mind, some Christians who would otherwise abstain from voting because they can't condone a president waging war have decided to give away their votes. Evangelical author and pastor Brian Zond writes that in 2008, he voted for Bob Dylan for president, and in 2012, he voted for Wendell Berry. But in 2016, he wrote this, 
I realize that my non-voting position can be problematic. Could it be that I am so privileged as a white, middle-class male that I can afford to disengage from the political process without much consequences? Perhaps. So a few weeks ago, I decided to do something different with my ballot this time around. I'm giving it away. I'm giving it to Igor. Igor is an undocumented immigrant from Russia. Igor and his wife have two sons, one born in Russia and one born in the United States. Thus, their younger son is a U.S. citizen, while they and their older son are undocumented. So two weeks after church, I told Igor I needed to talk with him. This is what I said. Igor, as you know, America has an election coming up this fall, and, as you know, you cannot vote in it, and that's an injustice as far as I'm concerned. So here's what I would like to do. I want to give you my vote. A few weeks before the election, I'll give you a ballot. You can study the candidates and the issues and fill it out. Then, on election day, I will go to the polls and cast your vote. It's not my vote. It's your vote. I'm just your errand boy. I won't tell anyone how you vote. It will be a secret ballot. And I won't tell you how to vote, other than to offer this bit of advice. I think you should vote for the candidates and propositions that you think would best benefit people like you. Igor gave a big smile. I feel good about my decision. Voting for candidates and issues based on who and what you think would best serve those whom Jesus called the least of these seems to be a Christ-like thing to do and a good way to vote. I would call it pro-life. Think about it. Benjamin Corey is another well-known Christian author who will be giving away his vote this November. Corey writes that in the past, he has simply abstained from voting in federal elections. First, because he's a pacifist as a Christian and won't vote for a candidate that authorizes war, but also because he believes that Christians are called to live as immigrants in their own society, that they are to be citizens of God's kingdom and not whatever kingdom they happen to be born into. And since immigrants can't vote in our country, why should he, a citizen of, kingdom, of God's kingdom, vote either? But he also recognizes that as a white, cisgendered, straight male, this election is not going to impact him like it's going to impact other people that he knows. With an election that has been tainted by Islamophobia, and xenophobia, and sexism, and racism, he knows that the outcome of this election could seriously impact the lives of people of color, of immigrants, of women, and so forth. Corey writes, Here's how I've decided to be faithful to my deeply held religious beliefs while also recognizing how easy my privilege has made that for me. I'm going to give away my vote this year. In fact, I'll probably be giving away my vote from here on out because it strikes me as the right thing to do. What does that mean? It means I'll be sitting down with someone from the refugee community I've worked with here in my home state of Maine, someone who is a non-citizen, unable to vote, and whose life will surely be impacted greatly by the policies and decisions of the next president. It will likely be a refugee from Somalia, since we have a large population here in Maine, because even the Christian refugees in our community have a larger portion of privilege than our new Muslim friends. Surely a, mu a Muslim refugee from Somalia, people of color who are poor non-citizens and who belong to the religion we most fear will be impacted by this election infinitely more than I ever would. 
To give away my privilege, I'll be sitting down with this individual, and together we'll talk through the candidates, the issues, and the referendums on the ballot. When we're finished, I'll be making a list of their choices on each of the various federal and local candidates, and each of the referendums being decided. When I walk into that voting booth on election day, I will not be walking in to vote myself. I will be taking their list and voting their personal choices faithfully. I'm giving away my vote this year. No, I didn't ask for all this privilege that makes abstaining from voting so easy, but I believe that I am responsible for how I choose to respond to this privilege, and how I choose to respond to do it this election is to give away my vote to someone who needs it far more than I do. Of course, not every Christian chooses to give away their vote or to abstain from voting. I vote by absentee ballot, and I confess that I have already voted in this election. Like many other people, I don't just consider voting and engaging in the political process a right, but I consider it a deep and serious responsibility. As a Christian, I believe that I must use every tool at my disposal, including politics to make the world around me more just and look more like the kingdom of heaven. In a conversation with Tony Campolo, Shane Claiborne from the Red Letter Christians writes, the question for me is not are we political, but how are we political? We need to be politically engaged, but peculiar in how we engage. Jesus and the early Christians had a marvelous political imagination. They turned all the presumptions and ideas of power and blessing upside down. The early Christians felt a deep collision with the empire in which they lived, and with politics as usual. They carelessly crossed party lines and built subversive friendships, and we should do that too. To be nonpartisan doesn't mean we're non-political. We should refuse to get sucked into political camps and insist on pulling the best out of all of them. That's what Jesus did, challenge the worst of each camp and pull out the best of each. That's why we see Essenes, Zealots, Herodians, Pharisees, and Sadducees all following Jesus and even joining his movement. But they had to become new creations. They had to let go of some things. Jesus challenged the tax-collecting system of Rome and the sword of the Zealots. So, to answer the question, I engage with local politics because it affects people I love. And I engage in national politics because it affects people I love. Shane seems to be saying that whether we choose to volunteer with a political campaign or even just to vote, that doesn't make us a good Christian or a bad Christian. Rather, what matters is how we choose to approach the process. Let's not be people who turn donkeys or elephants into golden calves. Let's not be people who get caught up in the cult of personality surrounding a candidate. Let's not be people who put our hope in any individual or any idea but Christ and love. Let us not be people who are quick to dehumanize and defame those with whom we disagree. It is unacceptable for Donald Trump to call women pigs or to summarize their whole value as a human being by evaluating their attractiveness. It's not acceptable that he uses racist terms, that he inflames xenophobia towards people from other countries and members of other religions. 
but I also don't believe that it is acceptable to call Donald Trump's supporters irredeemable, to put them in a basket of deplorables. Jesus reminds us that even the worst sinner is capable of loving their friends. important quality in as a faithful person engaged in politics is to remember that walking humbly before God humility to to ask God to help you every day as you step forth to remain humble and to keep your eye on exactly what your why you entered into this in the first place to love your neighbor to remind yourself all the time that that's why you're doing it and is the best protection against getting pulled off into the temptations of power or the temptations of money or or all the, or the temptation to manipulate the, those things that that's what i would say great challenges that our next president will face, challenges like poverty, war, terrorism, challenges like climate change and civil rights. There is still no greater task before them but the task of reconciliation. We have just one week left in what has been the most divisive political campaign in modern American history. Our country is deeply divided along partisan lines, along how we see the world around us. It's become harder and harder to coexist with people with whom we disagree. I want to be clear that there is no law that a candidate can pass. There is no policy position that they can put forward that will bring healing. So, I want to end today's episode just by challenging you to see reconciliation to see reaching across the aisle, to seeing beyond political dichotomies as a deeply political act and as a deeply faithful one as well. The scripture that Janet Edwards was quoting there was Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. May we do so 
between now and November 8th, and may we continue to do so on November 9th and every day after that. Amen. has given us much to think about as we approach this election. Like him, I have already voted, and I have a history of engagement with politics much like his, which I gave up when I entered ministry. The separation of church institutions and state means that when I represent an institution, like a church, I need to be nonpartisan. But I can always represent the political interests of the poor and outcast, like Jesus did, I just can't say which party I think does a better job of it with the people they propose for office. The only thing left for us to consider after hearing Emmett is the message of Scripture which guides us always. You've already heard a favorite, Micah 6.8, What does the Lord require of us? Justice and tenderness and humility? That's how the chorus goes, and Arlington Church of the Brethren will be singing those words this Sunday. I leave you with these words of Jesus from the Dunker Punk's core scripture of the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. God makes the sunrise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Emmett challenged us to see beyond the surface, to envision reconciliation both now and after November 8th. Then we, Dunker Punks, can be part of what brings this divided nation together. Red and blue, young and old, races of many colors, citizens and undocumented, straight, gay, bi and trans, all of us, beloved by God. Sure, it seems a far-off vision now, but it's how God sees us, so we should love those whom God loves. I pray for your deep thoughts and passionate actions. Be blessed, for you are a beloved child of God. The Dunker Punks podcast consists of a dozen contributors who care passionately about living Jesus' law of love for friend, neighbor, and enemy. Jacob Krause created our theme song, and Suzanne Lay, our co-producer, edited this week. I am Nancy Fitzgerald, your host. Connect with the podcast on social media by searching for Dunker Punks Pod. You can find previous episodes on the show page. It's at arlingtoncobb.org slash dpp and read more stories of jesus followers at dunkerpunks.com our next episode airs in two weeks 
and will feature the latest from the Church of the Brethren Office of Public Witness in Washington, D.C. Until then, be blessed.